Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. I'm your host, Anupadie. Thanks for joining me today. This is a podcast about rapid change in the legal industry. I'm excited to share my conversation with Christina Blacklaws, the president of the Law Society of England and Wales, the equivalent of our American Bar Association. Throughout her career, Christina has been a champion for gender equality in law, alternative fee arrangements, and the awareness of mental health issues in the legal industry. In our interview today, we discuss when and why women drop out of the profession, the impact of millennials in the workplace, and what she means by the concept of the, quote, man-shaped woman attorney. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Christina, thank you so much for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's my pleasure. So, Christina, I want to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself. Our listeners know that you are the president of the Law Society of the United Kingdom. They also know that you have a background in innovation. So I really want to throw it to you. You've had an incredible career And I'd love to hear how you got into law and all of the kind of phases of your career all the way up to this point where you are leading one of the most influential organizations in the United Kingdom. (laughs) How long have we got? (laughs) Okay. Thank you very much. And I'm delighted to have this opportunity. So if your listeners are interested, I started off my life in law studying at Oxford University, the, the subject of jurisprudence. Then I trained as a barrister, but to be honest, I got a little bit tired of ivory towers. So I went to an all-women law firm in doing community law in one of the most deprived areas of London and really changed my career. I then started to build and develop law firms, particularly community law firms, and One of the first things I did in the early 2000s was set up what I called then a virtual law firm. So it was based on technology and we had lawyers up and down the country who were working through the firm. And then in 2011, I set up the first alternative business structure in the UK with a business called the Cooperative Group. And the Cooperative Group at that time had a £14 billion turnover. We established a a national legal services operation delivering consumer law to ordinary people in the country. And at its height, we were helping over 300,000 people per annum with their legal problems. And what we did is we designed modular fixed fee systems which were remotely delivered. And after that, I moved to, as you said, heading up innovation. So I did a lot of strategic change management. And what do I mean by that? Looking at service delivery, looking at how that can be automated, process driven to ensure that what we're delivering for clients is something that is optimal. And at the same time, all the way through, I've had a representative role. So I've been involved in campaigning groups. I've been involved with the Law Society, and uh, my Law Society career has been going on for 15 years now, but four years ago, I decided I would put my hat in the ring for Law Society president, and you get elected to the role of deputy vice president, then you succeed onto 
vice president and then president. So it's really a three-year term, I guess, unless you do something appalling. And I've only got a few weeks to go and they haven't found me out yet. So I think I've got away with it. But it's a fantastic role. You do it. I think I think anybody does it to be able to make a real difference to the profession, but also for the law society, we have a huge public interest role as well. So, so both those uh, passions of mine about ensuring that through the good work of the legal profession, we can be involved in making society a better place and doing that with the most up-to-date technological advantages that we can is really sort of brought together in my role as Law Society president. There's so much to unpack there. I mean, you know, I mean, I've written down a half page of notes already on my end. I'd love to just give a bit of background to our listeners, which are, I'd say, you know, 90% US-based listeners And I think some of them maybe have never heard of the Law Society of the United Kingdom. What exactly is the mission of the Law Society? And you've kind of alluded to this earlier, but what is your personal mission as the president now of the Law Society? Okay, so it's actually the Law Society of England and Wales. We have separate jurisdictions for Scotland and Northern Ireland. And we are the representative body of all the solicitors. So really a couple of hundred thousand lawyers in England and Wales. And our job is to promote, to support and represent those lawyers But also, we have to safeguard the rule of law and access to justice, and we have to act very much in the public interest. So that means that we get involved with law reform, whether that's soft law or hard law. We get involved in representation issues, so access to justice issues. And we look always to defend and promote the rule of law, both at home, but also abroad as well. So that's a a big part of the work that we do. And what is your kind of central animating mission as the president of the Law Society? The things that I really wanted to address and achieve were mainly two things. One is around diversity and inclusion in our profession. And I hope you're going to give me a chance to say a bit more about that. And the second is around the use of technology, the future of legal services. And my my view, my strongly held view, is that as a profession, we need to embrace and we need to own all of the technological solutions if we're going to continue to have relevance to our clients in the future. So it's an issue of survival as much as an issue of thriving, in my opinion. And so there was a lot that we needed to do as the representative body to help our members to demystify um, the issues around the use of technology and for them to be able to make properly informed decisions about their careers, about the use of technology in their own firms and businesses, and also to better equip them to be able to help and support their clients who, if they're business clients or individual clients, are facing into a number of the same issues about the the use of technology in their lives and businesses. I think that's a great framework for the rest of this podcast. And what we're really going to cover here is first diversity and inclusion. And I'd love to kind of set it up with 
a quote from an interview you did with The Guardian. And then I want to go into a bit more of your views on the future of the legal services delivery model, namely the, the influence of tech on that. So let's kind of segment those two out. And I really want to start with gender diversity primarily in law. And there was a quote that really got me, and I'd love to kind of read it back to you and get your thoughts on it. And I really want to focus on actionable things that law firm leaders and administrators can do to address the very broad gender diversity gap in law firms, I think globally, certainly in the United States. As an aside, I know frequently when we talk about diversity, Oftentimes in interviews I've heard, you need to give some sort of uh, credibility to the idea that diversity is good. I think you've done very well in other interviews talking about how you know there's many ways that you can justify the importance of diversity, right? Whether it's moral or based on opportunity or simply just based on like a craven business calculation. You know, diverse teams <laughs> with respect to you know, race, gender, other characteristics just are better and are more profitable, more lucrative, more efficient. Before I go into this quote, do you have any thoughts on that? Just the kind of, to what extent you get pushback on the importance of diversity issues at all? There's a lot of pushback. And for me, I'm pragmatic. So whatever avenue into the right behaviors doesn't really matter. So it doesn't matter to me if you get the moral or the ethical case around diversity. It doesn't matter if you have children who are coming out of university and you don't want them to be have the difficulties that you see in other women or people from other minorities experience. It doesn't matter if it's just about the hard-nosed business case. Whatever, whatever it gets you to accepting that having a diverse organization is going to be a better organization, then that's absolutely fine. So, so yeah, we have done a lot of work around this to pull together um, the research and to evidence that diversity equates with profitability, which I think is pretty important, and that it also equates with happy functioning organizations. So it equates with good mental health. I think that is a message that is still kind of percolating across at least the American law firm and American business communities that, you know, this isn't an issue of political correctness. This isn't an issue of politics at all. This is an issue of business. Uh, So I, I really appreciate that framing. I want to go into the quote I mentioned from The Guardian. It starts with the following, um, In city law firms, and of course we're talking about London law firms, she remarks, she is you, a career as a partner (laughs) on average 15 years before, quote, burnout. There is a long hours culture. Respondents to the Law Society survey also identified the masculine shape of the law, and that's in quotes, as a big disincentive for many women. Quote, drinking in the bar, Mm -hmm. everything around sports in the evening, end quote, Black Laws explains. And a lot of women admitted they only reach senior positions by becoming, quote, men-shaped women, unquote, putting in the hours drinking, playing golf, or enduring late working nights. You know, that really resonated with me. What do you mean by the masculine shape of, of law and men-shaped women? Well, 
I'll talk a little bit about history in a moment because I think this is really important. But the reality is that forever law has been developed by men. The business of law has been male shaped. So what I mean by that is that women haven't been involved and that men have been in charge and that naturally they have developed ways of behaving and ways of getting on. So if we're looking at particularly around promotion and career development, that suit them. And, you know, I'm not casting any particular aspersions here. You know, any dominant culture does the same thing. But what that meant and what we heard from from many women from the survey which we undertook, and this ended up being the, the largest ever global survey around this issue, but also from the 250 round tables which we completed over the last 10 months in 22 different jurisdictions involving over 5,000 men and women. So we've got a lot of data to back this up and a lot of anecdotal experience as well. And and women were saying, particularly women of uh, the older generation, were saying that they had to really be a man in a skirt to be able to get on in their law firm. They had to exhibit masculine traits. They had to be competitive and they had to act in a very robust and what they meant by that was more than they would do normally. So they had to put on a particular mask to be able to to get on. And that also played out in terms of opportunities. So many women talking about that they had to learn about you call it soccer, we call it football, and cricket and rugby, and that they had to learn how to play golf, all things that they wouldn't have done, so that they could actually have opportunity to build relationships with clients and with their male colleagues. And those sorts of things which are make it very difficult because some women can and do do that. They go that, they make that effort to, to go the extra mile to change themselves into something that is more acceptable. But some women can't or don't. And the question really is why on earth should they? Just a quick point on that. I mean, it's it's so frustrating for me, right? Because that's just kind of a part of the culture that has nothing to do with legal work, right? And so if I'm a modern client and I want exceptionally good legal work done from a reasonable price incorporating all these perspectives, that doesn't have much to do with late night drinking and understanding the game of rugby like the back of your hand. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. But of course, what we know is law is a people business and it is about building relationships. And I completely agree. We need to reimagine how we do business development and how we give ourselves that opportunity to build those good and sticky relationships between law firm partners and clients. That has been the way it has been done for a very long time. And so to start to unpick that is is quite a challenge. But people, I think, are up 
to that challenge. And one of the things that we learned along this journey, and particularly from our male champions who had taken part in the round tables, is that they just didn't realize that they hadn't really put themselves in a woman's shoes. Maybe quite difficult, but you know what I mean. So they, they hadn't looked at it from a woman's perspective. And, and so they weren't being bad or mean or you know, trying to exclude women. They just hadn't thought about it. So raising awareness was really the, the very first thing that we identified that we needed to do. And that's, that's clearly related to, to unconscious bias. And what we found is that, of, of course, we all are biased. Yeah, that, that's a reality. That's a, a, of human nature. We we carry around a set of biases which may uh, go way back to our childhood, and we are only really dangerous if we are operating without an awareness of those biases. So without being very clear as to what our biases are and how they might be triggering responses to people, especially when we are making decisions about people. So raising that awareness is really key. And then with our male champions, what we moved on to asking them to do, and most of them are very willing to do this, was to, to take responsibility for gender and other equality. And by that, I mean that if some men had, for, for very good-willed reasons, thought that this was a women's issue and that women should sort it out, but actually, this is an issue for 100% of us, not 50% of us, and we all need to work together, to collaborate, to bring about greater gender balance, greater gender equality in our businesses and in our profession. Christina, to what extent does a flexible work schedule allow women to continue to advance in the industry, continue to make a play for partner and to what extent does it allow them to you know, rise to the senior levels in the legal industry? Well, what we found from our research is that almost everybody, and in the survey, it was 91% of, of people said that a flexible working culture was, was critical to improving diversity. But one of the things that nuances that is that it's got to be available for everybody. It can't just be a mummy track. That's really, really important because flexible or agile working is something that what we found is something that does, if it's done well and uh, the policies are properly implemented, really works for every single person in your business. It has to be built on trust. But we as a profession, we're very, very outcomes focus. You can count what we do, whether it's a billable hour or an email or whatever. It's, it's countable. So I would suggest that businesses should trust their members of staff. And what it does is it enables people who have maybe parenting responsibilities to flex their working responsibilities around those so that maybe they don't have to work part-time. They can work full-time. They can work in a way which meets their clients' needs, but they can also do it in a way that is perhaps family-friendly. And, and I do want to emphasize this is for, for, for men as well as women. A lot of the young men that we spoke to, more junior 
men, whether they had children or not at that point, were very clear that if and when they did, they wanted to play a full part in their child's parenting. So when it comes to these sorts of things, it's less of a, a gender issue, more of a generational issue. And that should really speak to law firm leaders, because if you are alienating your men and your women in equal measure from the uh, millennials and Gen Z, then you are going to be in real trouble in terms of developing the talent for the, for the future of your yep. business. Christina, we could create a hour's worth of podcast recordings and a great episode just on this point. I mean, I was thinking of a prior... I'm talking too much. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, th- th- we recorded an episode with a fellow named J.P. Box, who's a Georgetown law-educated attorney who practiced at the highest levels in the United States, who is now a millennial consultant to law firms. He's a millennial on the older end of the definition of millennial. And he now goes to law firms and talks to them about how they could have a a culture that gets more productivity out of millennials. And I thought of exactly what you said, which is they all, whether they're uh, men or women, ask for a flexible work schedule, not because they're lazy, not because they're entitled, not because they want a bunch of time off, but because they're more productive mm-hmm. that way. And, you know, my question yeah. is, does that new kind of unisex preference, right? Or, you know, preference by this entire generation, irrespective of gender, give you some encouragement as to a major thing that can be alleviated here so that the future of law doesn't require these burnout schedules and late night drinking sessions and FaceTime just for the sake of being in the office, but instead can allow everyone, men and women across the office to just be on this honor system where you could come in at 11 and leave at 3 p.m. But if you're productive, irrespective of where you are, you're celebrated. You know, does that give you some sense of that the future, at least in this one avenue, is going to be okay? Well, I think it's a part of the picture. And I agree that if we can get that model working well, then it is great for everybody. It's really good for that work-life balance. And it's good for people's mental health. Now, of course, you know, there has to be a balance there because we have to meet our clients' needs. And we've been doing quite a lot of work with the buy side of our profession to to make sure that we can coalesce around shared values so that we can build ways of working that work for everybody. And, And that's really, really important. And I'd add that one of the other things we've learned is that we need to have really visible role models doing this for people to trust that it's okay. With many, many examples of where law firms have policies that nobody is taking up because they don't trust that actually if they do that, it won't negatively impact their career. So, so it's really important to have those visible role models who are perhaps men who are undertaking a more family-friendly working structure and they're doing very well in the law firm. That's, that, I think, is, is really, really important. I love some of those kind of actionable policy next steps. I also want to give you an opportunity at this point to talk about women in leadership in law, which is, I think, a major agenda item, a major policy plank at the Law Society right now. What is it and how can it address issues of gender diversity in the legal industry? 
Yeah, so we have a, a big problem, basically. And I think you, you said at the outset you thought it was a global problem. I can tell you from having facilitated now 48 roundtables in 19 different jurisdictions on every continent, you're right. This is a global problem. Like in the US, slightly more pronounced in the UK. So for the last 15 years, women have represented about two-thirds of the new entrants into the profession. And indeed, for the last 30 years, so the 15 years before that, it was at 50-50. However, if you look at women partners, there's only 30%. If you ask about equity partners and you particularly look at our largest law firms, you will struggle to get to 15%, 1-5%. So 11, 12, 13% of equity partnerships, so of women business owners, is not uncommon. And that is, is really concerning because it means that it's systemic. It hasn't come out in the wash. We haven't, because we've had a predominantly female talent pipeline for decades, hasn't led to a predominantly female leadership, quite the reverse. The women have just disappeared. And so we really wanted to, to find out why that was the case and then to work out how we could do something about it. So that's why we undertook the, the, the global survey, largest ever survey around women in leadership and law. And that gave us a whole load of insights about what the problems were. So what were the, the career barriers that women faced? And the main career barrier was indeed around unconscious or you would say implicit bias. And then there were other problems, which are the, the male-shaped um, nature of the law and particularly when it comes to business development and engagement with clients, that being very male-orientated, and also the, the lack of work-life balance, the, the long hours culture, the fact that we are still wedded very much to, to just valuing the, the billable hour. So, so all of these things mitigate against women progressing their careers and indeed staying in, in, in the law. So that's when we undertook the, the roundtables the 250 of them over the last 10 months. And those roundtables were there to, to understand, to get that qualitative information about women's experiences in 2019, but also to support women and men to become activists for gender equality. And to that end, we produced some toolkits to, to help with that. And now we've produced two insights reports, one which was around the domestic roundtables, another which was around the men's roundtables, and the third, which will be produced next week, which will be the international roundtables. And these will be available if anybody of your listening interested on our website. We've learned a lot from all of this work and we've touched on quite a bit of our learnings already around the, the need to embed and mainstream 
diversity and inclusion into businesses, the need for flexible working for all. We've talked about role modelling. I really want to emphasise the importance of men in the debate to get men on board and taking responsibility. You know, the question that comes to mind to me right away is, at what part of the pipeline are women dropping out, you know, in disproportionate numbers? And correct me if that is maybe the wrong question here, but you get 60% of new attorneys, new solicitors at the very least, joining the legal industry. By the time you get to, you know, the magic circle, the top, 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 largest firms in London and other big cities, it's down to, I think you mentioned 12% equity partners. It really doesn't happen right away, right? It doesn't happen in your first year, kind of, does it slowly kind of chip away? Or is there a certain point where at the 8th or 10th or 12th year or when women reach a certain age or what is it? What is that point when men kind of continue marching on this path to equity partner, indeed to 90% equity partnership, and women drop off? Really, really good question. And what we found, interestingly, is that women leave every year. (laughs) Many people, I, I think, make assumptions that women leaving is entirely related to having children. And that really isn't the case. In fact, the American Bar Association did some really interesting research on this last year. And what surprised me is that the the demographic of women who were leaving in the largest numbers was actually women in their late 40s and early 50s which really surprised me. But the reason they gave was that they just had enough (laughs) and they could afford at that point to leave, which presumably is disastrous for law firms because that's, again, where they might be at their peak performance and their peak earning in, in their late 40s and early 50s. So there's a lot to unpick in this, but I think it's really important that we know that this isn't just correlated with having children at all and and it is because we are collectively failing to produce a working environment and to produce the opportunities for women to succeed that women are are leaving so a lot of women also told us that they were just fed up because they had you know, they hadn't been given the same opportunities as their male colleagues. They didn't get to do the same high profile or well-paid or important work. They were bypassed for promotions. They were getting less in terms of compensation, particularly around bonuses. And they'd sort of given up on it. So, you know, lots of different reasons, I think, at every stage of a woman's career. But unfortunately, there is at every point problems that women have to face and a lack of opportunity that they are not given, which leads to them either leaving or not progressing. You know, like we mentioned at the beginning of this interview, I'd love to get to some policy suggestions, some kind of solutions offered based on this this large survey, I mean, it should be clear to our listeners that this is a, you know, global problem. There's real money at stake in this problem. There's real unfairness baked into the system. What are some things that we can do? And what are some things that our listeners who are oftentimes C-level administrators, executives at large firms can do to start chipping away at this? Obviously, 
nothing in one broad brush can cure this, but what are among the policies and steps they can take to start and to kind of do their part in addressing this really deep-seated problem? There's a lot of advice and toolkits and information that we've put together on this. So the long version, have a look at the Law Society of England and Wales website for the Women in Leadership in Law program and all the literature that's there. The short version, we've covered things around visibility, role modeling, flexible working, putting together the business case and involving men. But perhaps I could say a bit more now about training. It's really important that we have the right level of training, and this is vertical, this is for everybody in the organization, but particularly those at the top around unconscious bias. It mustn't be a tick box exercise, so it's not just a one-off. It's got to be training which is fairly consistently run a time and again so that people can have this awareness front of mind. We also suggests that things like witness training, particularly in relation to inappropriate behavior around bullying and sexual harassment, so that people who see this know what to do. This training is really about building a muscle so that when you are in the situation, you can behave as an individual, you can behave appropriately. And then another type of training, just-in-time training. So if a business is going to be making big decisions about people, so it might be recruitment, it might be about compensation, it might be about promotion, then just-in-time training for that body who is going to be undertaking that decision is is really important. And then I'd add uh, a few other things, which is about fixing the system as opposed to fixing the the women or people from ethnic minorities or whoever is being disadvantaged by the current system. And I'm, I'm I think it's really, really important that we focus on the systems and making sure that they have integrity and that they enable everybody to be able to succeed in our legal businesses. And things like having blind and contextual recruitment processes, having objective work allocation policies, ensuring that there is gender balance and diversity balance on any decision-making body and ensuring that there is opportunity for parents, which is equalized, is also really important. So, so, you know, that's just a, a few ideas about what can be done by a business to really make sure that they can shift the dial in favor of diversity and inclusion, but particularly gender equality. I find that oftentimes objections to conversations like this about gender diversity are based on the fact that people rarely advance actionable, clear policies and ideas that relate to exactly how you could address this. What you just provided right there in the in the last 90 seconds or so were a number of very clear I think common sense, but you could tell where my kind of stance is on this, common sense of <laughs> addressing exactly this. What pushback do you get, if any, when you advance these things and you say, hey, you know, administrator, chief partner, equity partner, managing partner, whatever, of a of, of very large law firm, here's your playbook. This is what you need to do to address this problem. What do they say in response to that among the kind of more negative responses you get? Well, in the UK, there's quite a lot of hand-wringing. Most of those business leaders are are men. 
And most of them get that this is dangerous to their business, that the, the fact that they're not promoting women into positions of leadership. Most of, them, most of them do get that. However, are they willing to do what is necessary to change that? That is the question. So it's rare that I hear business leaders saying, well, that's just plain wrong and we shouldn't do it. It's more we don't know how to do it. And that's really why we wanted to produce the toolkits to enable key stakeholders and leaders of business to set the tone from the top, to be that guiding beacon, to be that role model, and to then implement the policies, which we know because of all of the research we've undertaken, that actually really make a difference. So it is asking busy people to prioritize this. And that's going back to the discussion we had before. That's why it's so important to have all the ducks in the row. You've got to have the business case. You've got to have the problem identification. You've got to have the solutions available and in a readily accessible form. So we've, we've tried really hard to make it easy for people. That makes that makes a lot of sense. I want to shift gears here now with the remaining minutes that we have in this episode. This podcast is about rapid change in the legal industry. You've spoken to a major source of, of rapid change in the legal industry, diversity, specifically gender diversity, but you also have a very impressive background in technological innovation. You mentioned at the very beginning that you worked on providing modular fixed fee systems, that you were a champion of the virtual law firm idea, and you really focused on innovative service delivery. I want to shift now from issues of, of diversity to issues of technology and how technology will affect uh, the future of the legal industry. From your position as the president of the Law Society, what is your take on how, let's say, the next 10 years, and I'm asking you to kind of unearth your crystal ball, kind of look into the future. How will the next 10 years look as far as the impact of technology on the legal industry? What's up ahead for us? Well, I usually say something a little controversial about this that, that has lawyers go taking a deep intake of breath. I think that we as lawyers and legal professionals will start to think about ourselves as data analysts and data controllers and data gatherers. And that is quite a seismic shift because what we have prized and what we have been paid for doing, which is to apply the breadth of our experience to a particular client's problem and to provide them with ideas about solution, we will be continuing to do that, but on a different data stack. So technology, I think, will start to really become a hygiene factor, fundamental to the delivery of legal services. And that therefore means that we as lawyers, if we want to continue to add value, because let's face it, if there's a technological solution that gives the same outcome, i.e. recommendations on on a dashboard to our client, you know, where is the added value from the legal services provider? Well, it has to be in our analysis of that for the client, 
So what does that mean in the real world for their real situation? And that requires, I think, huge emotional intelligence and also the ability to communicate and engage in a way that perhaps as legal professionals, we, we haven't really valued as highly as I think we need to do and prize into the future as in the past. So I think we will be advising in different ways. If it works, if we can get this working well for us, then it augments what we are able to do for our clients. We could become more important as providers of solutions to problems that they haven't yet that haven't occurred i.e to support them in their business development and growth as opposed to just being a problem solver when things go wrong but that we will be challenged in terms of uh, the skill set and the way that we engage with our clients now you know going back to the diversity discussion emotional intelligence communication um, engagement these these are things that to generalize, women often do very well. So we need to rethink, perhaps reimagine what our role is in terms of legal services provision and how we can really utilize technology to make our place in this brave new world. Do you think there's going to be a reimagining of the law firm as an organization itself? In a prior episode of this podcast, we talked to Gino Grady, who is the library director of DLA Piper, obviously the the massive global law firm. And one of the things he predicted is that law firms would have embedded data scientists working alongside lawyers to do exactly as you just mentioned. Do you think the future of law firms implies a future of uh, lawyers working with technologists, engineers, data scientists to deliver a packaged result to a client that isn't just uh, words on a Word document, but is a kind of a broad ranging data analysis, proposal, set of statistics, and as you mentioned, dashboards as well. Yeah, but I think absolutely that that is the case. And there are challenges for us in what historically rather hierarchical structurings in terms of law firms. So we need to get with that program pretty quickly and we need to stop talking about and dividing the world into lawyers and non-lawyers and respect and recognize that our colleagues who are experts, particularly in data science, for example, are going to be vital in terms of the future of uh, delivery of our legal services. I, I think there is a there are some challenges to the structuring of law firms as well. I think the partnership model has some presents some real difficulties for us in terms of being willing to put in CapEx for the medium and long-term development of a business and also the fact that it it is so lawyer-driven and hierarchical. Now, in, in the UK, we are able to have businesses that are owned and run both lawyers and other professionals together. That's the alternative business structure that I talked about beforehand and indeed set up the very first one of those. However, in in jurisdictions where you are not allowed to do that, that might also present real challenges, particularly if those people who are from other professions are actually providing 
the heavy lifting when it comes to the value that the law firm is able to deliver to the client. This is incredibly fascinating to me. You know, you've touched on the actual impact of technology. You've talked about the changing business models. You've talked about the changing kind of structures, whether it's billable, hour, or partnership. What's next for you, Christina? I mean, as you you wrap up your one-year term as, as the president of the Law Society, what problems are you going to, to try to take on and tackle next? Um, where, where do the next 10 years of your career take you? Oh, now that's a very interesting question, Anne. I will continue to advise businesses. That's my bread and butter. To horizon scan and to help them to work out what they need to do in response to the to the brave new world of uh, transformative legal service delivery. And I'll do that on a, a global scale. But I'll also carry on with some of my government appointments. So I chair the law tech delivery panel here, and that is government-backed industry-led and is trying to support the inward investment and growth to scale of what is still quite a nascent law tech industry, but also ensure that we get the legislative and regulatory frameworks right here. So at the moment, we've got a consultation out about crypto assets and whether under English law, crypto assets can be seen as property. We think they probably can, and we're going to then produce some guidance and clarity as to how any dispute in relation to crypto assets would be dealt with in our jurisdiction, which we hope will be of use and interest to the international community. And then I will continue with my women in leadership work as well as a number of ways that I want to carry on working in in that field. So I'm delighted to be able to marry my passions and my expertise. And I hope to be able to see you again soon in the not too distant future. You know, speaking of that, you are in London. I am in San Francisco. I am just kind of starting my day. It is mid-morning. It is the very end of your day, Christina. And so I really want to thank you for being so generous with your time. We would love to host you, of course, here at Case Tax in San Francisco. And I certainly do hope that, that we meet again very soon. Thank you again, Christina. And uh, thank you so much for inviting me on. And I, I, I might keep you to that invitation to San Francisco. I love that city. <laughs> Take care. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com, tweet at us with the hashtag Modern Lawyer, and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.